Green Green Left Weekly Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Hello and welcome to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning. It's a a cool and dark morning, um, which is nice, honestly. Um, I'm Ari. I'm going to be one of your hosts today, and I'm joined by... Sue Bolton. Hi. And uh, apologies from both Jacob and Chloe. They're crook as sick as a dog today. (laughs) Yeah. They've inconvenienced us, um, but we're here, and it's going to be good. We're going to have a good show. Um, before we begin, as usual, we're going to start with an acknowledgement of country. So Green Left Radio and 3CR um, are broadcasting from the lands of the Wurundjeri people, um, whose land was taken by force and whose sovereignty has never been ceded. Um, the, the struggle for First Nation sovereignty um, continues to this day, obviously, <laughs> uh, because the land has never been ceded. And as socialists, we pledge to actively support decolonization and First Nations justice, you know, whether in the case of Black Lives Matter, Invasion Day, Black Deaths in Custody campaign or Stolen Generation campaigns or any other decolonization efforts from uh, First Nations activists that uh, we can get involved in. And um, I would also like to just quickly acknowledge that it is Trans Day of Visibility today. And um, in honor of that, um, I will be able to be seen today um, and then I will be going back to being invisible for until next year. So uh, we're going to start off with uh, some a bit of news. Particularly, we're going to start off with uh, the New South Wales election. So Labor has um, won, in quotes. We've got an article on Green Left um, by James Weiner, um, who puts winner for Labor in uh, quotes because they have... Uh, come out of the election with 46 seats, which is not a majority, but they have um, enough crossbench there to form a minority government, which I always like to say is sort of the ideal situation with um, a Labour victory, is that they're not actually fully in power. But, um, Sue, you've been in New South Wales and Sydney for the last couple of weekends helping with the Socialist Alliance election campaign down there. So... How's that been? What's the the political situation being like down there? Well, I was really only there for uh, two and a half days, um, but it was very interesting. It was interesting um, on election night itself where um, there seemed to be a bromance between the leaders of the Liberal and Labor Party. <laughs> um, like it really literally was like that. It was you know, congratulating each other and how wonderful each other were and and so on and so forth. It was sort of really sort of quite strange. And probably for me, where I was um, campaigning for the Socialist Lights candidate, Rachel Evans, in the seat of Heffron, which is where the seat that um, includes the biggest public tower 
uh, public housing tower in Australia, the Waterloo Housing Estate, mm. uh, which the New South Wales government is about to flog off. Yeah. And hopefully there's a campaign to try and save it. Uh, and Rachel Evans, a candidate, was involved, heavily involved in that campaign. Already they had lost uh, a number of estates in New South Wales. Um, Miller's Point and other other estates have been lost already and people mm. uh, re- forcibly relocated and dispersed. So that electorate was, you know, was a very particular electorate. Um, no guarantee the incoming Labor government will not go ahead with the Liberal Party's plans with that housing estate. Oh, no. But it was interesting, some of the comments in the article in Green Left um, about the result, because the Liberal Party government is, was skiting or boasting about the wonderful tollways and mm. uh, that they've built over the last, you know, number of years, possibly this was just simply a subsidy for companies that um, had been involved in uh, building infrastructure for the mining boom in Western Australia that now were looking hunting around for new sources of profits. Mm. And so tollways were offered up in a number of cities in all over the eastern, eastern seaboard states. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of workers who are, especially from the Western suburbs, who have to pay $70 a week in tolls on top of petrol and mm, yeah. yeah everything else. Yeah, and I complain about how much it costs to take public transport four days a week. So yeah, well, it's it true. Public transport affairs yeah. are very expensive, especially yeah. if your budget if you're on low income or if your budget is very tight because you're on paying very high rent or very high mortgage. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I think it's, you know, if you took public transport every day uh, enough to hit the maximum in uh, Melbourne, it would be something like $35 a week or, like, 38 to 40 And it's, like, double that, the tollways in Sydney, right? And that is, like you were saying, that's a lot of impacting tradies and lower-income people as well on top of the cost of fuel. and um, But coming back to the, the bromance thing, so the article that we're looking at, um, that I'm looking at uh, in Green Left, is called New South Wales Labor Wins Battle of Civility in Lackluster Campaign, which is a great article title. But it does make the point um, that... Um, that like both the Labour and Liberal candidates uh, kind of congratulated or praised each other for the civility in which the the campaign was conducted, right? But like you're saying, there's no guarantee that Labour isn't going to continue coalition plans to demolish public housing or sell it off. Like we were talking about um, last week, um, the... Labor governments don't necessarily have a good, or at least modern Labor governments, but they don't have a good track record on public housing. And so this whole thing of civility is like civil to who, right? Is when Labor runs this sort of lackluster campaign that and ends up praising the coalition for being civil about running, they're ignoring all of the... I would say distinctly uncivil things that they're all just doing to regular people anyway. Oh, no, exactly. <clears throat> Labor doesn't have a good track record on public housing. Um, <coughs> both um, 
<coughs> excuse me, both Liberal and Labor have, um, in, in different states, have um, sold off or <coughs> transferred public housing to housing associations. But also on another front, uh, on the um, environmental front, um, the Labor Party also, um, you know, supports, along with the Liberal Party, um, going into the election, also supports the expansion of gas and coal exploration, mm. including the Santos Narrabri Coal Seam Gas Project, where there's been significant opposition from the Gumarai people, the farmers and locals who argue it will threaten the Great Artesian Basin. Um, yeah. And so apparently um, something like eight new coal projects are in the pipeline to be opened up across New South Wales. Now, that includes the Newston Mine near Newcastle, the Chain Valley Colliery near Mannering Park, and the uh, Mullaban Mine east of Mudgee. Now, I'm not sure what stage uh, these are at, whether they've been approved or waiting approval, but um, I think, you know, similar to federal labour, um, the, the New South Wales labour has shown itself to be willing to, um, willing to, you know, go down this track. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And for reference, um, the Great Artesian Basin is an underground water source, mm. kind of from, uh, like, a pretty good amount north of um, New South Wales down to Victoria. And so there has been concern particularly with um, the coal, with gas exploration and coal mining of breaking into the Great Artesian Basin and essentially poisoning this massive water supply that actually quite a good chunk of um, like the whole east of Australia <laughs> relies yeah. on for water, um, or at least partially. So all of these things... Aside from the obvious, you know, emissions poisoning the land, all of the usual problems with these things, there has been over quite a while now that, I, as I understand it, a concern about just poisoning the groundwater for a huge chunk of Australia if these sorts of explorations go ahead in New South Wales. No, that's that's exactly right. There is, uh, well, I mean, the Great Artesian, if, that, if the Great Artesian Basin is destroyed permanently as a result of mining. I mean, there's a lot of water that comes out of the Great Artesian Basin, mm. um, like it's um, farmers and so forth sink bores and tap into the Great Artesian Basin. Some towns rely on bore water, yeah. like one of the towns I come from in Western Queensland. Um, mm. So, you know, that's, uh, you know, very high sulphur content. Um, and so it is a vital resource, but it's also wasted. Like some farmers absolutely waste, waste that bore water. Just, it's just running on the ground doing nothing yeah. and being wasted. And mining companies, of course, you often use clean drinking water to cool down machines and for various industrial processes when they should be recycling their water and not using uh, water supply. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so it's for me, and we'll talk about it again a bit later in terms of um, some climate stuff more directly. Um, but it's kind of always worth thinking about 
in terms of talking about these sorts of things, just the act, like actually how big a problem all of these things are, like how many problems or any of this could cause. Like, um, we'll talk a bit more about, um, the, uh, the IPCC report later, but one of the things that is always, that I always think is worth pointing out about like climate change broadly is like one of the, the, the weird sort of slightly funny things is that it's gotta mean an uptick in flesh eating bacteria, which at least for me for a while, I was like, that's, that's just a thing from like science fiction, right? Uh, it's just one of those like abstract threats, but no, that's because the general water temperature is going to heat up. There's going to be more flesh eating bacteria, but also there's going to be more emergence of diseases. Like we saw with the COVID-19 pandemic, there's going to be more of that if climate change is not like worked on really severely. But actually I might lead in quickly to the, another point before we go to our first interview about that in terms of the New South Wales um, response to COVID. Um, like how do you think, that coloured the the way the election ran. No, not living in New South Wales and not living in Sydney. Um, I live in Melbourne. Um, I'm not exactly sure how much that played in, but there were some seats that swung against um, against uh, the Liberals, such as Parramatta, um, and there were a couple, you know, some seats in the West that did turn it, swing against the Liberals. And you'd have to think that the experience of that hard lockdown with, um, where Western Sydney was turned into really pretty much a police state, um, it was done in a very heartless kind of way. Like, yeah. sure, you need to protect public health, but you don't have to do that in such a police state kind of way. Um, you'd have to think that would have played into that because, mm. like, people in Western Sydney, you know, they were locked down in a way that people in eastern Sydney and the northern beaches were not locked down yeah. when there were outbreaks in those areas. So people could see the different treatment of people in the west compared to people in the north and people in the east, the um, you know, more affluent sort of areas. Um, so I think that did would have played into things. But one positive, I'll just end on this note, mm. is that the incoming Labor government has said they'll lift the wage cap on state uh, public sector workers, and that includes not just public servants, but ambos, nurses, teachers, etc. Um, yeah. You know, tens of thousands of workers. And that is a positive because that wage cap exists federally. It exists in every state government, whether Liberal or Labor. And that is a positive, but, you know, I don't know how far they'll go in allowing, um, uh, you know, a, um, you know, state public sector workers to actually catch up and get pay rises mm. above inflation. Yeah, because nobody's, yeah, nobody's getting those pay rises at the moment. <laughs> Um, but yes, we're going to go to an interview shortly, and it just occurred to me that I, fool that I am, forgot to introduce our interviews. So we've got to, we have uh, Alexander Brown coming up in a minute, who's from a anti-war group 
uh, Wollongong Against War and Nukes. Um, and we're going to be talking to him about a proposed nuclear base for Port uh, Kembla uh, in Wollongong. And um, then a bit later we'll have Alex Bainbridge um, to talk about the Albanese government's climate bill, um, the safeguard mechanism. Um, we would have had a third interview, but we couldn't get another Alex on short notice. So, um, But yes, we'll be back in a minute with Alexander Brown, and um, I'll just play a quick announcement while I get him on the uh, phone. So stick with us. This Friday is Trans Day of Visibility. After recent transphobic events in our city, we say enough is enough. Come to Transgender Day of Visibility Rally, now Melbourne, and reclaim our streets. State Library, 5.30pm this Friday for the March Through the City and Show of Strength and Resilience. Let's make this biggest rally for trans rights and the country has ever seen. State Library, 5.30pm this Friday for Trans Day of Visibility. For more information, contact the Victorian Pride Lobby via Facebook or email info at vicpridelobby.org.au. See you there. And we're back. And, um, yes, as promised, we have Alexander Brown on the line to talk about the proposed uh, nuclear base for Port Kembla in Wollongong, um, which is, of course, the subject of opposition from the community and from residents. Um, so thanks very much, Alexander, for coming on the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, so... You're at the moment talking to me, Ari, and we've got Sue as well on the line. So um, we'll start off with, um, could you give us maybe a bit of a background of the, the politics on particularly why Port Kembla has been shortlisted as a potential site for a nuclear base? Sure. Um, well, about it, um, a year ago, um, Scott Morrison made this mysterious announcement that they were considering three East Coast um, locations for for an East Coast base for the new nuclear submarine program under the AUKUS agreement. Mm. Those were Brisbane, um, Newcastle and Port Kembla. Now, it's very unclear really what the answer is to your question because those sites, none of them appear immediately suitable and all have um, various problems. Port Kembla was specifically ruled out as a possible submarine base under an earlier defence review before the AUKUS program was announced. So the exact reasons um, behind the politics of why Port Kembla appeared on that list have never been clear to anyone. Speculation might include that it's a fairly safe labour seat and maybe they were planting, um, you know, some sort of um, political game there. Um, there are certain um, advantages from their perspective, being a big steel um, producing town. As a university, there's an industrial base here, so whether there's some connection to that and the idea of expanding the defence industrial base uh, locally seems to be popular among certain business interests. Mm. So perhaps there was some sort of pull factor there. 
the local uh, regional development Australia Illawarra um, group, which is a, a, a Commonwealth-funded regional development body, had actually been advocating for um, for something like this um, for some time. So, yeah, there seems to be some pull factors from business, maybe certain defence interests around down at Nowra, which is an hour south of Bullingham, as a major defence-based um, albatross. So whether it's connected to that. But, yeah, it's been really unclear to us why Port Kembla. Obviously, it's a, um, a major city. We've got a couple of hundred thousand people in the Wollongong LGA, and then there's two neighbouring LGAs that make up the Illawarra, total population about 400,000, mm. um, you don't cite a dangerous, um, you know, potentially hazardous nuclear base. And then, of course, added on to that the potential for it to become a target in any conflict in the middle of a major built-up city. No, you wouldn't think so. It is a bit odd, certainly. Um, so, I guess... From there, like, what can you tell us about the campaign that's developed in opposition to the nuclear base? Um, and I think I forgot to specifically introduce that you are from an uh, anti-war group called Wollongong Against War and Nukes, WAWAN, um, which is a great acronym. So, but what could you tell us about the campaign and the what kind of layers of community have gotten involved and spoken out against the base? Okay, um, so... I guess um, I'll take it back if we've got a little bit of time to the AUKUS mm. announcement and some local um, some local radicals, um, myself included, started organising. Um, we have a small group on Commune and we put together a sort of discussion night about what AUKUS meant and the potential for um, what you know the, the potential for war that it represents. Because we, um, I certainly see it as a, a warmongering exercise, among many other things. Yeah. So that was sort of a starting point for myself and some of the people who later formed Huawei. Then a few months later, so early, I think it was um, February or March last year, Morrison actually named Fort Kembla, and then um, a few local groups, so the local student association first called a demonstration, um, that's Wollongong University Student Association, Undergraduate Student Association, um, in town, and a, and suddenly, um, you know, at very short notice, you had at that demonstration local union um, leaders, specifically the Maritime Union of Australia's um, Southern New South Wales branch secretary, um, and the South Coast Labor Council, the um, secretary of South Coast Labor Council, both spoke. A couple of the local Greens councillors. Um, spoke out against it, and then, yeah, um, local socialists, myself, um, and others. Um, now, Wollongong has a very long history of peace activism and, and, and anti-nuclear activism, so that then fed into a, um, a motion by one of the Greens councillors to um, renew the city's long-standing commitment to being a nuclear-free zone, and we had a quite substantial demonstration of 100 people outside the council chambers um, where that motion passed unanimously. Perhaps it wasn't unanimously, but it was fully supported by the majority of councillors. Um, and, um, yeah, that demonstration was, was, was a good sort of kickoff. We've had... <clears throat> we've tried to basically build links with 
the existing peace movement, um, which has been not really um, specifically organising since the, um, I guess, a couple of years after the Iraq war broke out. We had a very strong movement here against the Iraq war, um, and that continued for a couple of years, focusing on issues of war, terrorism, you know, state terrorism, um, racism and, and repression that were associated with the war. But there hadn't been a specific anti-war group functioning for some years. So we sort of pulled together um, those previous um, anti-war kind of connections. Unions have been very strong on this locally. You know, it's ironic when you have a Labor government pushing it Mm. because, um, you know, the the local unions are pretty much Labor Party affiliated, but at the local level they are opposing it. Um, And now they're starting to come out nationally too. You would have seen um, Michelle O'Neill made a speech uh, saying the ACTU opposed it, which is great to hear. So, yeah, in terms of those social layers, I guess there's a sort of historical um, peace movement. There's a union movement and then there's um, a sort of socialist and and, um, an anarchist and other sort of political movements. And then we've got community opposition sort of as well. I mean, they're all sort of blended, (laughs) but there's some of the different elements in the campaign. The electrical trades union... Oh, sorry, yes. No, no, keep going, keep going. Well, the electrical trades union have had a long-standing and very strong opposition to nuclear technology in Australia as the union representing electrical workers. Mm. And we had a public forum, um, again, this is about um, April last year, where we had local ETU official um, Scott Ludland from, from former Green Senator and... Again, I think it was myself. Um, we all spoke at quite a well-attended um, forum at the um, you know, Aboriginal Cultural Centre in town. We had a wonderful welcome to country there. And um, the, I think the, the Electoral Trades Union have come out again now nationally um, to start being more vocal about this. And I think they're an important um, part of it because they have such specific expertise and would be their members who would be servicing these, these boats. Just a quick question, Alex, um, before we... Um, an extra question. Um, is the basis of the union opposition um, to these submarines, is it um, just limited to anti-nuclear and the base-making... Um, you know, a submarine base in uh, Port Kembla making uh, Port Kembla a target, or is there a bit broader opposition to the actual war drive against China? Um, there's so many different me- um, bases on which to oppose this whole thing, you know, the war drive against China, um, you know, the whole manufactured threat of China being some sort of military threat, which is total you know, manufactured thing by the government, by both Liberal and Labor governments. Um, and then also the actual spending of $368 billion on nuclear submarines, which means there'll be no money for anything else. Um, so, yeah, just be good to get a little sense of um, the basis on which some of the different unions are opposing the deal. Yeah, um, it's a little bit... I don't want to misrepresent anyone, but mm. I'll, I'll do my best to um, what I know. Um, and some of the some of the unions have put out statements. Um, so 
sometimes it might be a little bit blurred in my head, but I'll do my best. Yeah. And I think we should definitely come back to that $368 billion that you mentioned, because I think that's really key to this whole question. But certainly locally, the unions um, have a strong anti-war stance, as well as opposition to nuclear. Now, I know the Electrical Trades Union's public statements around this. I think they have mentioned and, and are concerned about um, the war drive, but they have a very strong um, view about what Australia should be doing in shipbuilding. There's a Shipbuilding Unions Alliance, um, which I think is them, the metal workers, and a couple of others you know, that are involved, especially down in South Australia in the shipyards. And they basically advocate Australia should be um, building the diesel submarines that can defend Australia's shallow archipelagic um, waters around Indonesia, etc. not deep water boats. So they do have a more technical critique, but they're not completely opposed to um, building, um, you know, defence industry stuff. On the other hand, the MUA have definitely been very strong um, on, on, the, on the anti-war aspect of it. That's both at the local level and nationally and certainly the Sydney branch as well. And, you know, there's strong statements from all those secretaries, South, Southern New South Wales, which is Port Kembla, Sydney, um, and then I think the National Union as well, all talking about the threat of um, of war and all the war drive, you know, the, the idea that there's, as you say, this manufactured threat from China. I mean, I don't believe for a second that China is contemplating sort of um, military invasion of Australia and... You know, the role of these submarines is clearly part of integrating Australia into the US's own aggressive defence posture in, in the Pacific and subjugating Australia even further to that end. Although I think the debate there is, public debate is pretty immature because Australia is, is already basically a completely integrated unit of the American war-making machine. Mm. Um, you know, this idea that we're sort of Will we lose our sovereignty? I mean, what about Pine Gap? What about all the US installations all over Australia? Yeah. And the fact that Australia has, has loyally followed America into Iraq, Afghanistan, you know, Vietnam, just so many of these terrible, destructive wars. Hmm. So, yeah, the lo- and local unions have been strong on both. I don't know how much, you know, I know you guys are down in Melbourne, but here in Port Kembla, there's a particular local uh, history, and it's mm-hmm. kind of a powerful, um, it's, I don't want to use the word myth because it's a true story, but it's become like a legend. Yeah, it's a legend, a local legend of the union movement mm. and, the, and the social movement's about the Dalfram dispute. So back in the 1930s, you know, Australia had this very strange defence policy where um, the Lions, the Prime Minister, Essington Lewis, the chairman of BHP, um, Bob Menzies as Attorney General had this wonderful idea that the way they would defend Australia against what was clearly the growing threat of Japanese militarism in the region was to sell war materials, pig iron, to Japan, use those profits to invest in the defence industry. I mean, it was a ludicrous claim. So they were supplying Japan with the, with the iron that they were using to make bombs to drop on China, uh, and then later they dropped them on Darwin and other places in northern Australia. So, you know, this was BHP and the and the Conservative government conspiring with the Japanese militarists um, during a time of, of rampant Japanese aggression in, in mainland China. 
And the local um, branch of the Waterside Workers Federation took a stand on that. They said that they wouldn't load pig iron on the on the Dalfram, which was a a tramp steamer bound for Kobe in Japan. Mm. Now that walk off um, from the Dalfram ended up in a massive confrontation between the local unions and BHP and the state because um, basically there was a sort of boss's strike. The union was happy to continue loading other ships. Um, however, um, yeah, the, 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 the local bosses uh, decided it was time to put on a, a blue and they threatened to impose what was called the transport um the licence, they called it the dog licence. So there was a, a, a licence that maritime workers would have to have to work on ships. So the union refused to take out any licences. Um, the one person who, who uh, took out a licence was encouraged to turn it in and they then had a burning of that licence. And so there was a very long <laughs> and very bitter dispute um, over the... Um, over the export of war materials to an aggressive local, you know, regional military power. That was largely successful. In the end, the Union basically loaded that ship um, after basically the entire town was at the point of, of starvation. But in the process, there was enormous solidarity, especially from Chinese workers in Australia who had their own union movement. Um, there was a Chinese couple of Chinese unions, um, Chinese Seamen's Union and others as well as Chinese businesses in Sydney and um, elsewhere around the region who supplied food and, and material aid to the workers in support of their stance against Japanese aggression in, in China. So that is a legend that, you know, has been retold through the history. Um, not many people alive now who are from those times, so I've been privileged to hear one of those young Chinese grocer, he was at the time working for a grocer, who used to help load the food and bring it down here. A couple of years ago, there was an anniversary of that dispute, and um, and he came and, and spoke at a few events. We have a local beautiful memorial to that dispute on the headland there. So, you know, there's a lot of um, rich kind of local history that we're sort of using to say, no, that's not what Wollongong's about. We're not a town of war and and war-making, you know, we stand against that. Mm. Very important. Very yeah. uh, sorry, I'll, uh, sorry to cut you off, Ari, but just very important to maintain that tradition. And, of course, we had, I mean, he's passed on now, the absolutely iconic figure of Fred Moore, um, who, you know, I've met on a number of occasions, um, you know, old unionist, peace activist, um, solid, staunch, militant <laughs> and many That's many right, other yeah. individuals like him yeah it was actually fred's um died um just over a year ago the anniversary was death a few few weeks ago mm. and that was a very um yeah his funeral was attended by hundreds of people he was a very um important uh on so many so many struggles um absolutely yeah for sure i guess Maybe leading out of that that story, the um, refusal to load that ship. Like, what sort of actions um, have been going on um, in Wollongong against the um, proposed nuclear base, and what sort of yep. campaigns have been going on in terms of building opposition to it? 
Well, yes. So I've sort of outlined the ones we did last year. And then, yeah. to be honest, there was a bit of a quiet period towards in the second part of last year because there was no movement. Um, there was a new government elected and we were all sort of waiting to find out. But recently, or, or sort of, I guess at the start of this year, there were certain um, signs that the union movement was seeing, for example, some defence people down at the harbour making measurements and doing surveys and things. And also certain... We've got a, a major renewable energy investment um, planned for this region. So they're, they're supposed to be putting in, I think, about $45 billion worth of um, offshore wind mm. off Port Kembla. One of the people, one of the companies that was going to put that in mysteriously moved their proposal a bit further south down to Kiama, and it wasn't clear why. There's a few different things that were getting the unions very concerned that um, Port Kembla might be firming up. Mm. And then a few weeks ago, we saw this announcement, which was, uh, well, so it's not an announcement. It was an article in the ABC um, basically citing, you know, defence sources. So defence leaking um, military secrets, you would have thought, would be something you know, under other circumstances they would be severely prosecuted for, but there has been no mention of that they were doing anything wrong by leaking it. But anyway, leaking the idea that Port Kembla was firming up as the proposed um, location. So, look, we've, yeah, we've definitely, definitely redoubled our organising efforts. We've um, activated the network we built last year. We have a protest coming up next week um, on Tuesday down at the Novotel where there's a defence industry conference I'm just going to be standing out the front and letting them know we don't want a defence industry here. We want, you know, we want the renewable energy. The unions, I guess, the other really big concern for them is this $45 billion worth of investment could disappear if investors think the harbour might um, become a nuclear base. And if that would then... Uh, I mean, these are capitalists, right? So it, it's, if it would threaten the ability to easily operate there, for example, security clearance zones and other things, they might decide it's better to invest elsewhere. So they're very nervous about that because there's very long-term sustainable job opportunities um, in in renewable energy. They'll they'll actually construct these giant turbines that um, to take out sea in the port. Mm. There's a lot of work there for, you know, Maritime Union and other other um, unions. You know, and these are good, um, you know, well-paid Union jobs, and interestingly, the the New South Wales ports have also come out pretty strongly. Um, that's the state government um, against um, putting this there because they've said there's no room. They want to see Port Kembla become the second container terminal for New South Wales because Botany is predicted to get to its capacity. I think it's by about 2030. So the idea would be to build these turbines and then to use that that once they're built and taken up to sea, to use that area as a uh, um, container terminal. Mm. And so the port, the, 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 the idea that the nuclear base might actually threaten that is very concerning, even for you know the state government. There's been a lot of opposition, even at that level. Um, anyway, so we've got a plan of action coming up. We've got the protest on Tuesday at the Defence Industry Conference. Then the um, unions in the South Coast May Day Committee have called May Day March to be held in Port Kembla this year. That's never never happened before. 
um, and we're expecting a good turnout. I think some of the unions in Sydney will come down and others, and we're going to be supporting that locally. We're having a community meeting on the 29th in Port Kembla to try and build awareness of what's going on, try and address people's questions and build that campaign. And we've had a lot of good coverage in the media. And then we're also doing things like stickers and T-shirts and trying to get mm. messages out there that we don't want this thing. So I think we've got a good, we've got a good chance of pushing it away from Port Kembla. Um, my concern is the US obviously wants some sort of, you know, submarine access to the East Coast of Australia for their own boats. Yeah. So they may push it on to a, another community if we are successful. But for now, we've got to focus on, you know, stopping it. We're here and stopping it wherever we can. Yeah, exactly. Like, even if it does get pushed on, the first step is still stopping it the first time. That's right, yeah. Um, so Jervis Bay, just down the coast, is is actually Commonwealth land. It's a funny little part of the ACT on the east coast of New South Wales. Mm. And that's also a military base down there. So that's an area that's been floated as a possible um, but Jervis Bay have pushed away nuclear um, threats before. There was a plan to build a nuclear reactor down there. That was a subject of a very big local campaign um, some years ago, mm. maybe in the 80s, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, I guess um, just uh, um, if we have time, but I think the um, the issue of the money is really important, right? Like, uh, you know, the, yeah. the, um, your thoughts on this too, Sue, and... It seems that, um, to me, you know, that the prospect of Australia actually getting nuclear submarines is pretty remote. There might be a few old second-hand clunkers from the US sold off to us, supposedly, in a, in a long time in the future. I cannot understand how British submarines will ever be built. That seems completely nonsense. Um, the practical difficulties of doing that are just monstrous, but it seems to me that this whole thing can be understood as a huge scam for stealing enormous quantities of Australian taxpayers' money and giving them to US defence contractors to deliver very little, but basically subsidise their defence um, industry base. Well, and so, sorry. yeah, go on. Well, no, just go on. Um, even though Paul Keating is a total right-winger, <laughs> I wouldn't agree with him very much at all. It was interesting. He did make a point which um, most of the other commentators haven't made. So he basically said, you know, in reference to that picture of, you know, um, Albanese, the British Prime Minister and Biden on the warship, he said, are they all smiling but only one was paying, one dummy was paying which is Australia, and that That's actually right. hasn't really been picked up that much. That in a sense, what the US has done is they've—I mean—they've done this actually out of the Iraq War. They've managed to outsource or offload some of the spending on the US military effort to other countries. But then, you know, we've seen this incoming Labor government. Uh, crap on and on and on about the Morrison budget black hole and how they've got to carefully go through things. We can't, you know, go through the budget. We can't possibly afford everything. We've, you know, yes, if things we'd love to fund, but we can't really fund them, blah, 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 because of this budget black hole. But suddenly money's no object. Um, it's, it's quite scandalous and, 
And I think um, since the announcement was made and since actually Keating, in a sense, gave permission to more conservative um, people to come out against the deal, it's sort of people are suddenly starting to realise the implications of this, not to mention the fact that they're going to be looking around the country for some community they can bully into accepting a nuclear waste dump, most yeah. likely Northern Territory, most likely remote Aboriginal community. Um, the, they'll look for the most powerless community. Um, so I think people are suddenly starting to realise, even though this AUKUS thing's been around for a little while now, that people are suddenly starting to cotton on to what's involved in this. And, right. and I think if, and Dutton saying, oh, um, cut NDIS funding to pay for it. Um, so, ba- so basically all of these pollies are going to look for things that they can justify cutting to pay for this massive military expenditure for a threat that's not a threat. Um, it, it's, um, if this goes through, there's going to be no money. There's going to be so many cuts to so many things um, all over the place. So it's it's really important to block on so many different levels the nuclear angle, the war making angle, because working class people don't win out of war any war, um, and it's um, and nuclear trip, ships trundling through the Pacific. You know, nuclear waste, threat of nuclear accidents, you know, but also the spending. Um, yeah, this is an absolute disaster. It's good to start to see the anti-war movement and unions and so forth um, coming back up. I'm actually also, you probably don't know, but I'm also a councillor on the local council of Meribeck, which is sort of inner north council in, in Melbourne, yeah. and I'm putting forward a motion... Uh, against this, um, against the nuclear submarines, etc., and um, the war drive and so forth um, at a forthcoming council meeting. Don't know if it will get voted up, but anyway, we'll see. Um, but the more we can get uh, more motions from organisations with all different angles and the more protests, the better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. I think that's another angle we'll be trying to pursue is the council, um, because there is some support there. Um, it'll be, yeah, <laughs> it might be tricky, but we'll definitely try, try and get similar sort of motions, I think, as, as the campaign goes on. Unfortunately, the mayor of Wollongong, who has actually got a history of being quite, um, supportive of the peace movement has, has been completely, um, hopeless on this. Um, it's very disappointing to see someone who spoke against the Iraq war and, all that is basically refusing to take a stand and and being yeah Yeah. anyway we'll we'll battle on yes so thank you very much yeah well thanks for coming on and Um, good luck with the campaign and we'll try and thank you we'll try and do our bit in Melbourne and Victoria as well I think we need a a big big national thing against this yeah thanks very much thanks Alex thanks have a good one All right. Um, so yeah we were just uh, having a chat interview with uh, Alexander Brown from the anti-war group uh, Wollongong Against War and Nukes, um, which is, we were talking about the proposed nuclear base in Port Campbell in Wollongong. And um, as I was saying earlier, it's always good to think about just how many problems seemingly just like one ordinary thing can cause. 
um, or not ordinary, obviously, in the case of nuclear power or whatever, but this, it's like, oh, this is one problem that might impact this one thing, but no, there's so many problems spreading out from it, especially, as we were saying, with the amount of money going into it. But um, we are running behind schedule, as always, which is fine because we only have two interviews. So uh, I'm going to play another quick announcement, and then we're going to get Alex Bainbridge on the phone to talk about the Albanese government's uh, safeguards bill. So stick with us. We'll be back in a minute or, yeah, probably about a minute. Kafirs are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafirs.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. All right, and welcome back to Green Life Radio on 3CR 855 AM. And uh, as promised, we are joined by Alex Bainbridge to talk about um, the Albanese's, um, the Albanese government's safeguards bill and their new, their whole thing and all of the problems and all of that stuff. And um, I mean, we had Alex on last week and we introduced him thoroughly then, but I'm still going to do it again. So Alex is a all-around stand-up guy and also frequent contributor to Green Left and um, fairly frequent interviewee on this show. So thanks for joining us again, Alex. Uh, good, mon- good morning, Harry. Pleased to be with you. Cool. And you're also we're also here with uh, Sue Bolton. So, Sue, do you want to lead off? Hi, Alex. Um, now, the Albanese government is trumpeting uh, the, the passing of this safeguard mechanisms bill as being a great day for climate action. Um, what? Uh, but it's there's a lot of criticism of this bill also for being inadequate. Um, what What do you think of this bill? I mean, we obviously know it's inadequate. It's relying on carbon offsets. It allows new coal and gas projects. Do you think this bill is a step forward for climate action, the status quo, or worse than uh, worse than doing nothing? Look, the, the bill has been amended, uh, so I think that with those amendments, it kind of it's been transformed from utterly terrible to um, to, to basically just merely useless. <laughs> um, I mean, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of um, problems with the bill. I mean, I think I mean the first thing you need to note is that it doesn't even attempt to look at what in the jargon is called the scope three emissions. So that's the emissions that, uh, like say for example, Australian coal or gas uh, is burnt overseas. Uh, that that you know, creates emissions in the world, which causes climate change in the world. Um, those scope three emissions are com- you know, massively bigger than the than Australia's domestic emissions, and this bill doesn't even try and attempt to, to deal with that. 
This bill only covers 30% of domestic emissions and is only seeking to reduce them by 30%. And the other big problem with it is it's entirely based on market mechanisms. So, you know, that's really inadequate given the given the scale of the crisis that we face and the urgency that we need to see climate action. Really, what is required is direct regulation, and the most important um, the most important example of that would be you know, a clear determination that there will be no new coal or gas developments in Australia. Hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the carbon offsets angle on this because I've sort of been reading um, not just the fact that carbon offsets is really like cheating, like, you know, you produce stuff that's going to kill you, i.e. carbon emissions, um, but you cheat by, you know, by saying, oh, well, um, yes, we're producing these carbon emissions, but we're going to plant a few trees over there, um, allowing us to keep on... um, keep on polluting with carbon emissions. Um, but also what I've sort of re- been reading lately about carbon emissions is that even if um, like one tonne of carbon offsets compared to one tonne of carbon emissions is not an equivalence because one tonne of, uh, of carbon is, um, you know, of carbon emissions is releasing um, carbon uh, carbon emissions which have been stored for maybe potentially millions or thousands of years, whereas carbon um, carbon stores, carbon offset stores in forests, um, only store the carbon emissions for a short period of time. So it's not actually an equivalence. Um, would you like to just explain why this carbon offset um, cheating is uh, not worth the paper it's written on? Look, there, there are lots of problems with, um, with uh, offsets. Um, and, you know, part of the problem is that, I mean, yeah, there's, you know, there, there are many different ways that you can get them. I mean, so in the worst cases, it's things like, um, well, I was going to increase my carbon emissions, but now I won't. So given that, given I didn't increase my carbon emissions by much, as, as much as I was planning, that should be a tradable offset I can sell to somebody else so that they can increase their emissions. I mean, obviously that, <laughs> that kind of an offset is, you know, is completely useless. Um, That's madness. even, there's, even there's other things like, you know, um, uh, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to promise to, uh, to reduce, reduce my emissions in the future. Therefore, that's, that's sort of an offset. Even if you take, say, the best kind of example, like say, for example, you've got, okay, plain land, you're going to plant a huge number of trees. The trees will absorb carbon from the atmosphere. I mean, that, you know, that, you know, the most, you know, the, the offsets with the most integrity are of, are of that kind. But the problem is that there's, there's still a, there's still a problem with that as well. Um, I mean, for one thing, uh, if you release emissions today, they go into the atmosphere right now. Um, the, the forest that you build, the forest that you grow, um, will absorb emissions over time. So there's even that, just in that, you know, in, in the time between now and when the when the, the forest is mature, um, you've actually you know, increased emissions in the short term, um, and 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 the. the the extraction hasn't happened immediately, yeah. um, but also beyond that, I mean, most of the sort of most of the carbon credits um, accounting mechanisms only sort of last for a hundred years. 
whereas emissions from coal or gas that are burnt uh, stay in the atmosphere for hundreds and hundreds of years. So um, even the best case scenario, you could you could start growing a forest today, uh, gain gain emissions credits for that, um, and then um, you know in a hundred years you can <laughs> sell your forest for wood chips, and and you've still basically you haven't actually um, you know. Uh, you haven't actually solved, you know, solved the carbon problem over the long term, um, but you've actually you've got a short term sort of carbon credit for it. So, I mean, there's that's that's basically the problem is that it's basically quite dubious. It would be much better to um, instead of instead of spending money on offsets to actually directly pay for technologies or changes in production processes that reduce emissions, or else to just you know, cancel some sections of the production process. If you invest in renewable energy, and then you, you therefore reduce less emissions, that's a much that's a much more effective um, method of emissions reduction than paying for offsets that may or may not be um, very useful. The other thing is, you grow your forest. As I said, um, there's no guarantee that 20 years time there's not going to be a huge bushfire that comes through and burns the carbon anyway, or that some other unexpected um, development might come along and and undermine the the even what seems like a at the more at the more rigorous end of the of the carbon offset spectrum. Um, there's it's not it's just not guaranteed to actually have the same effect as actually reducing emission. And then at the worst end of the of the carbon offset spectrum, um, it's just it's just complete fraud. It's just you know it's, it's just um, uh, it's got no benefit at all. Now, I mean, it is fair to say with the Greens amendments in this um, offset bill, some of that there is some tidying up of the um, of the offsets, but in my view, not enough. So, yeah. what's oh, so you you go, Ari? Oh, you... uh, yes, for sure. I mean, that whole thing of like, oh, I didn't pollute as much as I said I would, so that counts as an offset credit I can sell to someone else. That's just madness. <laughs> like what? But it is like you're exactly right. Is that any any basically any offset, um, at least that I'm aware of, being available now, is in no way equivalent to the pollution that it's offsetting. Like you said, because all these offset, any like actual useful offsets, will take time. And what we are being, what are we are continuously finding out? Is that we don't have that much time to do that to do something like that? It is really like critical that we reduce emissions, not just uh, plant trees, and hope that that maybe works out in the future so that people can make more money or whatever. It's again, it all seems like madness. If I may add in, there's 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 two types of trading that go along with this um with this safeguard mechanism. So the one that we've talked about so far is carbon credits or offsets. But it's another mechanism, another trading mechanism in the in the safeguard bill, which is called safeguard mechanism credit. And that kind of illustrates another problem with the safeguard mechanism in that what what the mechanism is looking at is the intensity of carbon pollution. I mean, you can sort of almost look at it as like the percentage of carbon pollution uh, sorry, given a given a certain amount of production. Now, you could actually increase your production but reduce the intensity of the carbon pollution, and that actually is going to make the problem worse. So, say for example, I mean, this, you know, say you double your production of, you know, you, you've got a coal mine, you double the production in the coal mine, but somehow you get some technological change that reduces the um, the the 
you know, the fugitive emissions from your from your coal mine extraction by the 4.9 percent that the that the government is is claiming they they're aiming for, um, then even though you've doubled your coal mine, you've actually you've increased your total emissions. According to the safeguard mechanism, you've actually um, you, you know you've reduced the intensity of your emissions, so that's okay. Now, worst case scenario, say you double your your production in your coal mine, but you um, reduce the intensity of emissions by more than 4.9%, so you go down to 5.3 or 6.9, whatever you've got, an extra couple of percent up your sleeve, you can sell that gap in your um, in your emissions to another company that basically hasn't reduced by their 4.9%. That's called a safeguard mechanism credit. So you can literally increase production, increase your total emissions, reduce the intensity of emissions, and then sell that safeguard mechanism credit to another company to enable them to increase more as well. So, I mean, I think the, the biggest problem with this whole thing, as I said earlier, is that it's, it's based on market mechanisms and not direct regulation. And the, the problem is that there's not a genuine commitment, neither from governments nor from the big corporations, to actually reduce emissions by the, on the scale and the time frame that is required. And in that context... There are so many loopholes and tricks and schemes in this sort of market mechanism schemes that, that basically makes it um, undermines the use, usefulness of this method of trying to achieve carbon climate action. Yeah, exactly. Like it's not very useful to begin with, and there are so many ways to make it even less useful for companies. And it's, I mean, the, the point that I always make and that I ended up making fairly continuously, say, during the last two election campaigns in um uh, Victoria for federal and uh, state is that it's part of most companies, especially companies in these sorts of areas. It's part of their budget to get fined for breaking regulations. Like that's that's factually true. <laughs> I don't okay. I might be overstating it in sort of in terms of most companies, but a lot of these really big companies, it is budgeted for them to get fined for breaking regulations, and so. There's this degree to which these trading mechanisms are essentially then also funding the these companies paying off the fines that they get for breaking the regulations anyway, or whatever. So like you said, it is deeply ineffective to try and create this sort of some kind of very ineffectual market-based solution as opposed to an actual solution that would have to be necessarily like regulatory. It seems, again, I'm just going to keep saying it, it all seems like madness to me. <laughs> well, it's actually no wonder that the Business Council and the other big business organisations um, supported this bill because it does really pretty much nothing. Um, I think one of the things is, though, that a lot of people in Australia who support climate action but they're not inter- um, not involved in climate activism they just want to see action and so they probably don't necessarily know how little this bill actually will do to address the issue of climate change because there has been a total lack of climate action on the streets to expose um, this bill, like the last time the Labor government tried to do a do-nothing bill, the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, which a lot of people probably don't really remember what that was all about, and the Labor Party has kept on sort of 
blaming the Greens for not passing it, saying it was going to do wonderful things. But there was a very active climate movement at that time, whereas at the moment the climate movement appears to have gone to bed and has not been raising its uh, voice about the inadequacy of this bill. And I really do feel that a lot of Australians probably assume the bill is going to do a lot more to tackle climate change than it actually is. I was just wondering if you'd like to comment on some of that. Yeah, well, I think that uh, I think that is true. There is probably an impression that has been created that the bill will do more than what it's actually going to do. Um, and I think, um, I mean, I think... <laughs> One way I think you can think about it, I mean, the best you could possibly say about this bill is that it's too little, too late. But I'm actually worried it's not even going to be that good. Mm. Um, I, I think the, the the amendments are being overhyped in, t- in terms of how much effect that they have um, had. Um, like, it's, I mean, it's true that the amendments have improved something that was utterly terrible. Um, but I, I, I think it's exaggerated. It seems to me it's exaggerated the actual impact that the amendments are going to have. Um, the, 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 com- the commentary about this is contested, um, but I think it's very clear. Like um, things like you know the, the gas prices, the gas share prices fell immediately, but then they've actually gone up again since then. Um, there, there are, of course, a number of fossil fuel executives that are complaining about um, uh, complaining about it. But there's also at least as much commentary from the from the big business you know, representatives and the, and the direct companies themselves. So basically saying they can live with this, they're comfortable with it, it's not going to, um, it's not going to interfere with their, um, plans, it's not going to stop new coal and gas mines, um, opening up, etc. So, like, if this was, if this were a, a serious climate, um, you know, climate reduction measure, you would expect that there would be, uh, significantly greater, um, squeaking and squealing from the, um, from the corporate, um, big troughs. And, you know, know, all the indications to my mind are that, um, as I said, the best you could say is this is too little too late, but I fear it's not even that good. There's one comment um, I would like you to respond on a little bit, Alex, is that um, there was an interesting article, opinion piece, by a former Greens candidate, nowadays opinion writer and journalist for the Sydney Morning Herald, Osman Faruqi, and he um, was quite critical of the Greens for caving in and voting for the bill. Um, but he also quoted one of his journalist colleagues from the Sydney Morning Herald, Ross Gittins. Um, and Ross Gittins uh, printed an article basi- basically um, making the case for rejecting the bill. And what Ross Gittin said is, um, I'm quoting just a sentence here, he says, one advantage of voting down the bill would be to stop Labor pretending it had done something meaningful about climate change while actually prolonging the future of our fossil fuel industries. I was just wondering if you'd like to comment on um, on that sort of sentiment that maybe it might have been better to have voted down the bill and um, popped the propaganda bubble that this was actually doing something serious of course you'd probably need to have you know a mobilized climate movement to explain all of that um to people what do you, what would you think about that 
Look, I think, I mean, for people being critical of the Greens, I think the most important thing to realise is that the real enemy in this is Labor. Mm. I think the Greens are 100% correct to say that Labor is the political representative of the fossil fuel mm. industry. And, you know, I, I mean, it, it is very clear Labor does not have a plan to actually reduce emissions in a serious way and to actually tackle the climate emergency in the way that is required. Um, you, you can just see the, the the difference between the IPCC report, which came out um, last week as well, and the, the plans of the Labor government. There's just there's just huge stark difference between them, and I mean that that's where that's where our sort of political fire really needs to go. I mean I think the Greens probably did the best they could in terms of parliamentary negotiations. Like you you, you wouldn't. It's not realistic to think they would have got a better outcome by that sort of means of parliamentary negotiations. But, but to me, I think the real thing that that shows is there's a huge limit by what can be achieved purely just within Parliament. So the biggest criticism I would make of the Greens is that they didn't organise, which they have got the resources and the capacity to do if they if they chose to. The Greens didn't organise a huge, you know, even just even just one national lab action, but at least the beginnings of a sort of you know mobilised climate action um, to to put pressure on the Labor Party to change the balance of forces of what is possible. Uh, that that is what I think really needed to be needed to have to, to be done, and I am inclined to agree that it would have been better not to pass this bill, even even with the amendments that have been made. Um, I think that um, the process for the Greens to justify their support base why they voted for this bill um, makes it seem better than it actually is, and. And in that sense, it disarms the people in the need to actually mobilise and protest against the government's, um, you know, the fossil fuel, the pro-fossil fuel government, Labor government. It disarms people's, you know, capacity to mobilise against that. So I'm inclined to think it probably would have been better not to pass this bill yet. But what about the climate movement, Alex? Because, like, it would be good to make some assessment there because, like, the climate movement was mostly pretty silent in this debate about the bill. And does this sort of indicate that um, at least the climate NGOs in particular um, were just so desperate to have anything that they were prepared to go quiet and just accept anything that the Labor Party was prepared to dish up? Um, it really only became evident sort of later on in the piece where Bob Brown, I think he resigned from the Australian Conservation Foundation. Now, that's one of the more conservative of the uh, climate NGOs. Um, But he indicated that they were just echoing Labor's line of just saying the Greens should pass the bill. Because I think that's sort of one of the problems is, and it's been a problem for uh, quite some time, is that the climate movement was super active in the first uh, um, you know decade of the 2000s and then it sort of went quiet apart from the odd uh, national day of action and uh, when school strike for climate first formed but really um, you know the lack of a sufficiently active climate movement um, re- relaxed the, or um, took pressure off the Morrison and government, and also took pressure off the Albanese government with this bill. Yeah, well, obviously we need more climate action. I mean, people like um, NASA climate scientist Peter Kalmus has called for one billion climate activists in the world. Um, 
That is exactly what we need. Um, you know, we need we need everybody everywhere to do everything they can to sort of try and um, to build the build the protest movement. I mean, I think there are there is. I mean, well, certainly the certainly the conservation foundation um, uh, political interventions in, the, in this debate were, in my opinion, pretty shameful. But also, I guess I wouldn't really expect anything better from the conservation foundation than that, um, because they've got a long history of. Um, you know, cooperating with Labor governments and, um, you know, being politically soft on Labor. And I think there's a lot of other, you know, environmental NGOs that have been, um, you know, kind of made statements along the line, which are more or less true. You know, the, the amendments made it better, still not good enough. We still need to work hard to, um, uh, to, to stop new coal and gas. Please chip in our help our campaign. I mean, I think that line of argument, I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's not wrong, but I think it. I think it uh, is is not. Um, uh, it doesn't match the what is needed in terms of an on the streets protest movement against what the government's doing. Against, in particular, in particular, I mean, the Greens are 100 percent correct to sort of focus on no new coal and gas is the priority. Um, they're exaggerating how much that has been achieved by this by the amendment, but that is the priority that is that we need to we need to push for no new coal and gas, and we need. A fierce protest movement to um, you know, to make that happen. Now, I mean, that, that, that's incumbent on all of us. I mean, you can't just blame other people. All of us need to sort of um, to work to try and achieve that. It's true the the COVID pandemic kind of undercut a lot of momentum that was building with the with the the, the, the secondary student or the student climate strikes. Um, we need to sort of find the ways to actually rebuild that momentum. Yeah, for sure, and I mean. There's an article that I keep uh, have kept mentioning that we probably won't have time to discuss in detail on Green Left. Um, Britain unions, environment, healthcare groups jo- to join major extinction rebellion protest, and that's the sort of thing that we need here as well. Like from the article, it's the trade unions, um, environment, and healthcare groups, are, and like teaching unions have all come out uh, given their support to extinction rebellions. The big one demo in London, um, which will be April 21st to 24th. And like, that's the thing that we need. And kind of one thing that we've talked about a few times on the show is that, I mean, for one, union activism is just sort of down in general over time, as has happened with the general weakening of union kind of power, but, and working class <laughs> solidarity, really. But, the other thing is that when Labour's in government, generally they're less active. And as you were saying, the IPCC report that came out, uh, was it last week? Um, yeah, yeah, last week. Last week is like, it's dire, really. We're in this really dire situation and there are sort of all of these really, I mean, aggravating factors that you know, the union doesn't want to get on the bad side of Labour because A, union bureaucrats want to end up being Labour politicians and B, the Labour parties, the, the, theoretically, it's the major party that's slightly better on workers. And there's just all these factors that's like, oh, but how about that we really need to significantly do something really quickly or we'll, we'll all die of flesh-eating bacteria and smog and more diseases because all of the water's too warm and, like, <clears throat> do you ever get aggravated, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> I 
Look, I think it is important not to over catastrophize, but yeah. I think also at the same time we are so we are so close to the to the edge of the cliff that um that you know what is required is a urgent society wide mobilization of resources to address this climate catastrophe to reduce emissions. Um, it, all the science that I have seen is a, is not too late, and we need to hold on to that and use that as a as a confidence boost that it is actually possible to build a people's movement that can actually restrain these fossil fuel corporations and the governments that support them. That's that's it is possible to do that, and we need to we need to, we need to hold on to that and make it make it a reality. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you're definitely right. I don't mean to catastrophize necessarily, but it does always it really it does end up bugging me um, the way that you can kind of see these like annoying political machinations when we like, even if it's not going to happen tomorrow or whatever, we are faced with this like absolutely severe problem that is well within our power to do something about. And um, so, yeah, like as Sue was saying, um, and I think you were saying as well, uh, the, the way that, this kind of the response to this bill has been like, ah, uh, look at this, you know, historic move by the Labour Party to do something about climate change or the sort of the over hyping of the amendments as being more more than taking something from terrible to useless, as you described it in the opening of the interview. Um, it's. It is have it does feel like it'll have this chilling effect on what little of the climate movement is still active, and that worries me. You know. Um. Well, I think the important thing is not to get worried, but to get active. I think Greta yeah. Thunberg um, makes very clear many times that um, action is what is what leads to hope. So I think I, mean, I think that's the that's the take home message. Yeah, that's a. Absolutely great take-home message, uh, especially because we are going to have to let you go so we can have time to do the activist calendar before we get off the radio. <laughs> um, so thanks very much for joining us, Alex. Thanks, oh, Alex. Thanks for having me. It's been good. Bye. Have a good one. All right. So we were just talking to Alex Bainbridge about the Albanese government's safeguards mechanisms bill and the climate movement and just, you know, a whole stuff. And he was giving me some free therapy, which was nice of him. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, I think we'll hit uh, another quick announcement and then we'll do the activist calendar and we'll see how much time we have left after that. So stick with us for a minute. Um, we are Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. With Facebook stripping content, it's a timely reminder to focus on the communication channels and platforms that the community controls. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter, at 3CR, and Instagram, at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch. 
3cr.org.au. And we're back. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM, as the announcement just informed you. Um, I'm Ari, and I'm joined by Sue for this, the like seven or eight minutes that we have left. Um, so we're going to do the activist calendar, um, and only got a few items on it today, um, but I would say they're all important. <laughs> Um, so the first one is, as I mentioned at the start of the show, um, today is International Trans Day of Visibility or Trans Day of Visibility. It's also International Backup Day, which is interesting. So in the spirit of um, not Googling what International Backup Day is, everybody should turn up to the rally that's going to be this evening at the State Library, um, the Trans Day of Visibility rally um, from 530 Um uh, to back up all of your trans friends and um, siblings and all of the trans people in general and also the, the just, like, possible continuing functioning of society. And now, look, I don't want to keep catastrophizing, even though it's fun, but the context, like, I'm sure we... I mean, we've talked about it on the show and it's been around and whatever, but there's all this, like, really heavy context to this sort of stuff at the moment, Right is that it's been a really particular fascination or focus of, like, the, the international fascist movement as represented by, like, the U.S. Republicans and people like, um, what was her weird pseudonym, Posey Parker, from mm. a couple of weeks ago, to whose rally the explicit Nazis turned up and she was fine with that, right? Like, this... The trans people have become this real specific target of like the extreme right and also the right in general and really just a lot of people. And it's because of that. And historically, it can be like difficult for trans people to be visible at all, right? Like there was a action, was it last week that was attacked by the, protest against Mark Latham, was it? Yeah, yeah, it was last, yeah, yeah. last week or the week before, yeah. Who were attacked by the, like, physically attacked by the Christian right. And it can just, it can be dangerous to exist, in a sense, as a trans person, and particularly dangerous to exist as a trans person who's visible. And that's sort of, that's what um, Trans Day of Visibility is about, is being seen if it's safe, and, but, like, being seen and support as well and particularly trying to to work on the the way that particularly the right wing but like some just areas of society kind of view trans people as being this like aberrant thing out on the edge which makes it easier for the right wing and for the fascists to target them in the first place so kind of coming and supporting trans people again not to catastrophize might help democratic society keep functioning for a bit longer. (laughs) And in fact, um, the mobilization should really be on the basis of um, the old union slogan of touch one, touch all. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to discriminate against one part of society, you're discriminating against all of us. And so we all need to 
come together in solidarity, regardless of whether we're trans or not, regardless of whether we know someone who's trans or not. We need to unite because discrimination affects us all in the end. It poisons society. Yeah, exactly. Another article we didn't get to that I do want to recommend people check out is, um, what was it? While silent on apartheid, Israelis protest Netanyahu being, um, Netanyahu do, firing do you a minister. Can the details of the rally? Uh, I, okay, I'll, I'll announce them again quickly. Yeah. Five, from 5.30 at the State Library today. Um, yeah. and if, it can be a bit early, um, if like me, you have a job that finishes at 5 p.m., but, if you can't make it by 5.30, turn up late anyway. But I just, I, yes, quickly. So there's been a lot of protests happening in Israel against Netanyahu, just basically pushing further into an authoritarian society. And one of the points that's made really well in this article is that, in essence, that's inevitable um, for this, the type of society that Israel is, in that it is a really explicit, active, like, violent colonist society and so you know like there's been i don't know how widely it circulated but i've seen a couple of videos of palestinian activists trying to turn up to these rallies and getting attacked by them and yet these rallies are calling for democracy and you know safeguarding society and stuff but that's essentially impossible with that state of affairs as Sue was just saying, touch one, touch all. If you have, um, if you're kind of willing to tolerate a society that has these kind of, um, prejudicial approaches to certain people, has this like really active bias against, um, people, these structural inequalities, then you're, you're willing to tolerate a society that like is functionally incapable of like actually being good, um, and like, the discussion of what a good society is is going to take way too long. But kind of on that theme is Sunday, April 2nd, as well as the Palm Sunday uh, Walk for Refugees, Walk for Justice for Refugees, which is 1.30 p.m. from State Library again. And um, then Monday on the 3rd is a protest to tell Claire O'Neill um, permanent visas for all. And Claire and- O'Neill, for people who don't know her, is the Home Affairs Minister and very... Um makes very rotten statements about migrants and refugees. Yeah, because Labour has, despite in the election saying that they would do something about permanent visas and um, what was the the weird acronym for working visas? SHIV visas? Oh, um, well, the te- the um, should be talking about some of the temporary work visas, but the... Um, yeah, they, basically the government has made an announcement that they would convert um, that refugees on temporary refugees on temporary visas, which is temporary protection visas and the mm. Chev visas, can apply for permanent protection. So they're not going to shift all of those visa hold, temporary visa holders who are refugees across to permanent protection. They have to go through a lengthy application process for permanent protection, which implies that it's not inevitable that they'll be transferred from a temporary visa to permanent protection. Yeah, and not only that, but the the Labor government's continuing stuff like boat turnbacks and um, refusing to let anybody in by boat and keeping offshore detention running and that sort of stuff. So it's important to get to these, to the Palm Sunday one and the the protest to tell Clara Neal 
to give permanent um, permanent visas, uh, which I don't think I mentioned where that is, is uh, 6 p.m. Sofitel, which is um, 25 Collins Street in the city. Um, and, yeah, that was, sorry, Monday, April 3rd um, at 6 p.m. And um, uh, last one that we'll mention is a forum um, on, this is Tuesday, April 18th, so a bit further away, a forum, Milita- Militarism and War in the Asia-Pacific, uh, Why AUKUS is a Disaster for Humanity, um, which will be from 6.30 p.m., or you can turn up at 6.30 to get some food, uh, which is going to be at the Resistance Center, um, which is level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city, which is um, across from the RMIT building, um, and that's organized by us at Green Left and um, by Socialist Alliance. So um, come along to that if you can. Um, and I always like to mention that, uh, like, there's going to be stuff that we don't cover or maybe if you want to find further details that we don't have time to mention, that sort of stuff, you can go to greenleft.org.au slash events. And um, I think by default it'll give you, like, the day that you're searching, but there's there's different areas, there's different dates. You can, And if you want, you can sign up to the newsletter to get a fortnightly kind of digest of events that'll have links and all of that sort of stuff to get more info. Um, and you can even, if you want, you don't have to, you can put in your, um, like... I just forgot the word. You can put in your postcode or something to get like targeted events. And yeah, there's always, there's going to be stuff that we don't have time to mention on the radio. So, um, if you want, you can go there and, um, get the digest. And, uh, but that's, we have to wrap up now. So, uh, thanks everybody for listening. And, um, the, if you want to help us stay on, you can go to greenleft.org.au slash subscribe or you can donate one, a one off or whatever. And, um, Look up out for uh, Earth Matters coming up next. And, um, yeah, thanks for listening and thanks and, for co-hosting. And you've been, just if you've only just tuned in, you've been listening to Green Left Radio on Community Radio 3CR, 855 on the dial. Yeah, thank you, Sue, and thanks for joining me today. And um, <clears throat> we will see you another time. Pretty much That's next Friday. The, yes, <laughs> I won't be in next Friday though. Thankfully, oh no, problems have occurred. All right, see ya. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from the slummers. Arise, you prisoners.